morning to Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And we're going to consider this morning the last two sections of the parable that we began last week. Now, to introduce our thoughts, I would lay this before you. At the greatest tragedy in the universe, in each individual's life, and the greatest tragedy in all of eternity is to miss the grace of God in the Son. To miss God's mercy, to miss His salvation, to miss the greatest expression of His goodness in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, whom we have sinned against, whom we have rebelled against, whom we have rejected and scorned and provoked, extends Himself in grace to His fallen creation. He gives Himself for our sin. He anticipated from the very first sin of man in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 that He would send His Son, though there cloaked, and it would be progressively revealed with clarity. His Son, who would be the suffering servant, He sent Him... He sent Him and then He crucified Him and He displayed Him publicly as a satisfaction for our sin in His blood through faith. To borrow the words of Paul in Romans 3.25. And then He raised Him from the dead, furnishing proof to all men that He is in fact the Son of God and He is in fact a Savior for the sin of man. According to Acts 17.31. He is also the one who is coming to judge men. But until that time, He offers forgiveness, He offers grace, He offers eternal and lavish kindness, He offers to us sinners joy, righteousness, eternal blessedness. He offers us who are guilty and worthy of judgment, not only all of these things, but all of these things come because He offers to us something more precious, Himself. He offers us Himself in His Son. Yet so many will hear and refuse His offer of grace. They'll simply ignore it, or ridicule it, or violently oppose it, or falsely attach themselves to Him. In short, man blinded by our own sin will reject in whatever form, will not believe, will not turn to Christ in humble childlike faith, and many will miss the God's grace in Christ. And because of that, we'll suffer not only in this life pains and troubles that could have been avoided, but we'll also suffer eternally under God's judgment. Now, this is precisely the reality that the Lord is addressing in this parable in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And it's realities that He has addressed in the past, and it's realities that He will address again throughout His ministry, even in parables yet to come, and even from the right hand of God in the rest of the New Testament by the Spirit whom He sent. But here in our parable this morning, Jesus confronts the unbelief of His people. In the final days, He's only days before His crucifixion, before they will reject Him and turn Him over to an evil Roman governor to execute Him, to take His life in the most terrible way. His people, whom He came to offer the kingdom, forgiveness of sin, everlasting joy, Reject Him. And it's not only Israel, but that is a picture of the response of man to God. He came to His own, and His own received Him not. So the principle is this, that God offers His kingdom of joy to all, but many will only know wrath because of neglect through apathy, scorn, or presumption. 
Now read with me the parable and then we'll review briefly what we looked at last week and consider the rest of it this morning. Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 22, reading down to verse 14. And Jesus spoke to them again in parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Go back up to verse 1 and let me remind us of what we considered last week. Now this parable easily breaks up into three sections. And we looked at the first of those last week in verses 1 through 7. And namely the tragedy of rejected grace. Now God is using here, Jesus is, a picture of a king giving a wedding feast for his son. In that way God portrays his people's rejection of his glorious kingdom that was before them. God has prepared for His people a banquet of grace purchased by His Son. He has prepared them for a kingdom. He has prepared them to be called near to Himself. He has given them promises. He has even given them a Savior. Yet they repeatedly rejected Him and ultimately rejected His Son. They were, in the words of verse 3 in the parable, unwilling to come. They're not just fictional characters in a parable, but it is a truth that refers to all of those leaders in that wicked nation that rejected Jesus. He'd say later at the end of Matthew 23 and verse 37 that he longed to gather them together, gather them together in essentially arms of grace and salvation. And yet, he says of them in verse 37 of Matthew 23, you were unwilling. You were unwilling to come. So God is willing, but they are not. They are simply not interested in the promise, which means to say then they are simply not interested in their God. Yet in spellbinding humility 
and patience. God pleads with them in verse 4. I have prepared everything. He speaks through the mouth of this king. Come and enjoy all that I have prepared for you. And so God has continually reached out to his people who have continually turned a hardened heart and stubbornly refused to come to him. Paul picks up in this language in Romans chapter 10, referring back to Isaiah 65 2, in these words All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. God is continually stretching out his hands, ready to receive them, and they are continually refusing him. There is a time then when his patience comes to an end, when his Pleas for them to receive his mercy will turn into a time of punishment. So God, like this king who was enraged and set their city on fire, will bring destruction to his people. A reference here ultimately anticipating, I think rather clearly, the destruction that he would bring on the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD near the end of what is known as the Jewish revolt which began In 66 AD, it ended in horror, it ended in destruction, it ended in misery. Millions were killed, thousands upon thousands were crucified, suffering the ravishes of famine and other miseries that were brought upon them. And that would happen only 32 or 37 years after he gave this parable and about 10 years after the writing of Matthew. And though he is specifically here dealing with his people, Israel, ultimately the destruction that comes to his people for refusing his grace is a picture in the the big picture of the destruction that will come to all men who rebel against him. It ultimately anticipates, as every destruction against rebellion does, the destruction that will come against a fallen world who refuses to receive the love of the truth. Peter speaks of this destruction in 2 Peter 3.12 when he says that we are looking for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements melt with intense heat. So the rebellion of man will continue to the end of this age and at the end of this age God will bring it to an end by destruction. Yet... Just as in the parable, the rebellion and rejection of his people, the destruction of Jerusalem, even the world, does not eliminate his determination or his will to bring to himself a people on whom he will shower his grace and his mercy. And that is the point. He will extend his love and he will bring to enjoy the lavish riches of his saving grace a people who will delight in him. But in verse 8... For those who reject this call, they are forever excluded because, as he says, referring to those whom he's just mentioned, they were not worthy. They were not worthy. It does not mean that any man is morally worthy in and of himself. It does mean that those who reject his grace show themselves unworthy of his blessing of salvation and rightly worthy of the judgment that will come Upon them. Nonetheless, the wedding feast, he says in verse 8, is ready. It's ready. And it stands ready to be shared with those who will receive him. 
Let's notice then the second part of this parable and note the tremendous grace of God's kingdom in verses 9 through 10. Look at verse 9. So he tells his slaves now again that they are to go therefore into the main highways and as many as you find there invite to the wedding feast. Again, the first invitees having refused, some of them judged, all of them not worthy, the invitation is extended to a greater number. And they go out into the main highways, he tells them, a term used only here in the New Testament, defined by one as the place where a main street cuts through the city boundary and goes out into the open country, an outlet away out of town. In other words, he's speaking here, is go to the ends of the roads of the city where they break into country roads, where they turn into roads less kept and less traveled. And the idea is this, go into all of the roads in my cities and call all whom you see there until you come to the very end. Everybody. Call them. They are welcome to come to my feast. And so as they find these people, they are to invite them to the wedding feast. The offer is now brought to those who would have otherwise never expected to come. Who would have never expected to come. These are those who were simply going about their business. They knew nothing of an invitation from the king. They were simply attending their way with no thought of going to the prince's wedding feast. And yet they are suddenly swept up into the event and extended a surprising and joyful invitation. You can imagine what these People would have felt hearing this invitation of the king. The wonderment and unexpected joy that would attend such an invitation. Me, invited to the wedding feast of the king? Me, getting to partake in such a joyful celebration? Wow, how amazing. It would not be unlike walking through the streets of England simply minding your own business at the time of the wedding of the prince and being extended an invitation to come and partake fully in that celebration and to enjoy all that is attendant with it. And so it is with these who have now been surprisingly invited by the king and no doubt receiving the invitation with joy. And so in verse 10, the slaves went out into the streets and gathered all together all they found, both evil and good. And the implication here is that of all they found, they accepted the invitation. They were not taken by force. They were not made to come, but they heard of the king's feast and offer and they responded. And the point is then that the king was determined to fill his place with those who wanted to be there. He then adds the phrase the good and or the evil and the good to further define the all. In other words, it includes everybody indiscriminate of their moral uprightness or preparedness. It did not matter who they were. The only prerequisite was to hear the invitation and the only requirement then was to respond to the invitation. Now this would frankly, as Jesus is giving this parable, be scandalous to those religious leaders listening. They disassociated themselves from everything unclean, everybody unclean, everybody they deemed beneath them. They asked Jesus more than once during his ministry, why are you dining, why are you eating with tax gatherers and sinners and the unworthy? That was their attitude. And they would have tinged at the idea of the unclean and so common of men coming to the feast 
of a king. What a ridiculous thought. Yet this speaks to the mercy and the generosity and the kindness of the king, as well as to his love for his son, whose wedding day he wants to be a joyful celebration. And certainly these would be filled with joy. Rather than the first group, who even if they had come, demonstrated that they probably would have had still a sense of self-interest, a sense of entitlement, and lacked the gratitude that surely was a part of this second group who received an unexpected invitation. And so in the second part of verse 10, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. And again, this is a glorious picture. The empty hall is now filled with people. You can imagine the voices of excited chatter of all of those who are in attendance, the movement of the servants back and forth as they attended to their every need, the honor of the king of his, and his son as all the people gathered before them are ready to celebrate and enjoy their gracious hospitality. It is a wonderful picture. And the initial tragedy of rejection and destruction is now turned to celebration with joy and thanksgiving. And the term here that it was filled speaks that it was filled to capacity. In other words, there was not an empty seat in the palace. Every place prepared by the king is now filled with a person who is fit for the occasion. It is a joyful scene. It is a happy scene. It is a delightful scene. However, in the midst of this scene of joy and happiness, for one of the guests it is suddenly and shockingly changed to a scene of horror and fear. Look at verse 11. And what a big change this is. But when the king came to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Now, it would not be unusual for a king to come in and review his guest, particularly in light of the circumstances of this parable, those who were just randomly, as it were, pulled off of the streets. So he comes in to look them over, which has the idea to scrutinize them, to examine them, to look at them closely. And so he does that. He comes in and he looks at the hall. And as he does, and the people gathered there, and as he does, one stands out conspicuously from the rest, for he is, of all the guests, the only one that is not clothed in wedding clothes, who does not have the proper attire. And so seeing this man, the king stops, and he calls him out in front of all of the other guests. And no doubt, when the king addresses him, he is filled with a sense of shock. He is taken off guard. And the king says to him, Friend, how did you come in here with not having wedding clothes? How did you get in here? And the question is shocking. It is direct. But it is not harsh. He addresses him as friend. There is a scent of gentleness in this term. Though clearly it is a tone of displeasure. The issue, however, that needs to be addressed is the absence of proper clothes for the occasion. Now, it was not unheard of, though it is not great historical evidence for this, for a king to provide a robe fit for the occasion. Some suggest here that it was not a robe provided, but simply the proper dress that the man should have worn on the occasion. Maybe the idea that they went home and could gather clothes for the occasion. And in support of this, they suppose then that... All of these people would have had time to go home and put on attire that was fit for such a celebration. However, this is weak, 
The implication is that those invited were of the lower class and there is no reason to think that they would have had their own garments for such an occasion as a wedding celebration of the king. Also, there is a sense of urgency in quickly bringing the guests to the feast. The food has all been prepared. Everything is laid out. They need to get there quickly before the food spoils. And moreover, the king's response implies that all were equally able and expected to have the specific garment for the occasion, one supplied, I believe, by the king himself. Therefore, the absence of the garment on the man implies then for this man a stubborn refusal to accept the garment when entering the banquet hall. And even if it were the other way around, the hard attitude would be the same. It would display one who refused to put on and prepare for such a festive and honoring occasion. It suggests a certain arrogance, a certain dismissive attitude toward the king and the occasion. Perhaps you can imagine he said something like this, What I am wearing is good enough. I don't need another garment. Or maybe even he was Something like, he was kind enough to invite me. He won't make a big deal out of my not having the same garment or robe as everyone else. I'm here at the feast. Surely he will let me stay, no matter what. Clearly this man was wrong. And clearly he had no excuse for being there without the proper clothes. And so now here he is, singled out among all of the guests. And you can imagine the silence that now attends this what should be a festive occasion. And the eyes are focused on this man. But most importantly, it is the piercing gaze of the king that is his concern. And so with silence in the room, the man sits there stunned. He sits there exposed. He who entered brazenly, expecting leniency, is now left exposed before all. And so what does he say? In verse, the end of verse 12, he was speechless, speechless, dumbfounded, silent. He had nothing to say. The king's question still hangs in the ear of all of those there, and yet this man is silent. He's given the opportunity to make a defense for himself, but he has no excuse to offer. Now his refusal is called out and his heart no doubt sinks in horror and fear as the countenance of the king grows darker and darker with each passing moment and any hope of leniency is removed. This is confirmed in verse 13. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a severe and a horrifying sentence that must be seen as matching the crime and the arrogance and the audacity of the man to be there without wedding clothes. He who had every opportunity to be clothed and receive the offering of the king refused. Now he is rejected and judged. And the judgment is terrible. It's unimaginable. He's bound and thrown into a place of deep darkness He will no longer see light. He will no longer hear the sounds of people, but only the sounds of his own weeping from overwhelming sorrow, gnashing of teeth that results from unimaginable suffering. And the final word comes in in verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. 
Ford marks this as an explanation of why this one was cast out. He was called like the others, but his proud refusal of the wedding garments demonstrated that he was not among the chosen. So there is the parable. Now what does it mean? Let's go back up to verse 9 and note the tremendous grace of God's kingdom. The picture here of grace freely offered to all. He says in verse 9 to these slaves, Go therefore out into the main highways, go out into the streets of my kingdom, as it were, and call everyone that you see. This is anticipatory of Christ's own commission to his disciples and by extension to us after the resurrection. You know it. Matthew 28, 19. What did he say? Go, therefore, to all the nations and make disciples. It is language that exactly reflects the words of the king here. In essence, this is God's offer of salvation to all men. God's heart, which the Jews never fully understood, was always for the nations. It was inherent both in who He is as Creator, it was inherent in the Abrahamic promise that He would be a blessing to all of the nations, and it was repeated even in the prophets that Gentile nations would also come and worship the God of Israel, though they seemed so often to be blinded to it and displayed the attitude even that we see in Jonah, who did not want the nation's salvation, but only their destruction. But that is not God's heart. Every human being bears His image, and the Son of God came to take on humanity to redeem men, not simply Jews. And again, this is not new. This should have rang with the ring of truth to them. Listen to God's words in Isaiah 45, verse 22. He says through the prophet Isaiah, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. All the ends of the earth are welcome to receive God's salvation. And it is only God's salvation that all the ends of the earth need. The very point that he's making there is, I am God, I alone am God, I, the God of Israel, am alone a God who saves, as well as a God who destroys. And he invites all to partake of his grace. He says again in Isaiah 55, familiar words, verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. That is God's call to His people. There is an abundance of grace and mercy that awaits for you. You can come and receive. I will give it to you. This is always God's call to sinners. Always God's call to sinners. It was even, in essence, God's call to Cain after he murdered his brother Abel. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Can you not know the same joy as your brother Abel? But if you refuse and remain hardened in your sin, then you will know only grace. 
But God's heart has always been to call sinners to receive His mercy. Now in this context, there is an emphasis on the nation of Israel, the extension of God's kingdom that after, excuse me, Israel rejects it, that will go out to the Gentiles. In fact, he's already mentioned that, if you'll remember, back in verse 43 of chapter 21. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. You, yes, the leaders... And yes, even the poor and those who accept the gospel among the Jews, as he mentioned back in verse 32 of 21, but even more, to a nation, to a peoples, to the nations who will receive the Son of God, who will know His grace. But it's important to note here that God is not excluding the Jews. He's simply including the Gentiles. And that's an important point to notice. He's not excluding the Jews. He's not saying that salvation is no longer available to you, for Jews are saved. He is saying that because of your rejection, God is going to focus primarily on another people. Another people. Remember that after Christ's ascension and the sending of the Spirit, the gospel went out to who? To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16 The gospel began in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then extended to the remotest parts of the earth. Paul's own ministry through the Gentiles was even to make the Jews jealous, to compel them to receive Christ as they saw his work in the life of the Gentile believers. He longed for them to know the grace of God. Indeed, Paul went first to the synagogues and only after being rejected went to the Gentiles in the cities. But the point is simply this. The offer of God's grace in Christ to enter His kingdom, to know His salvation, is open to all. None are excluded from the grace of God. Absolutely no one. Every human being on the face of this planet is invited to participate in God's salvation in Christ. And none, get this, who desire that grace are refused. No one. If any sinner feels the burden of sin and longs to be covered by the grace of God in Christ, they are freely invited to do so. They are impelled to do so. They are invited by God Himself to know His grace and His mercy. But they must come in the right way through Christ. They must not come, as Jesus said in John chapter 10, some other way. Note next then, not only the free grace of God, but the punishment of impostors. It is something that is inescapable, inescapable. The wedding hall pictures here essentially the visible assembling of the people of God. Soon to be identified specifically as the church after Pentecost, after the coming of the Holy Spirit on His people. The reality is that that was in Scripture repeatedly addresses this, is that not all among the assembly of God's people are in fact God's people. Some are imposters. Some are present among the visible assembly who do not have then wedding clothes. They do not have wedding clothes. That then begs the question, what are the wedding clothes? What are these clothes that we must have to stay at the feast? What are these clothes that we must have to participate fully in God's kingdom and and salvation. 
Well, the identification depends somewhat on whether they are the proper clothes of the guest, in other words, something that they put on themselves, or whether they are something given to them by the king. Thus, they would either be the righteous acts of the saints, or it is the imagery of being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I would submit to you that such a sharp distinction does not need to be drawn. The imagery includes both realities. Neither of these realities can be separated. There is no true righteous act that flows out of a relationship with God that, is not, that does not come through Christ. And there is no one who knows Christ and is covered by His righteousness that does not demonstrate that righteousness in their life. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 20 of Matthew. Do you remember? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter into the kingdom of God heaven. What is he saying? He is not saying that righteousness is simply a matter of doing more than the scribes and Pharisees. He's not saying, look at what they do and do it to a greater degree. He's not saying that. He's essentially saying, you need a righteousness that is of a totally different kind. That is of a totally different nature. That is not partial, but that is complete. Essentially, as this would be later revealed, a righteousness that is not your own. It is a righteousness that comes through Christ. It is a righteousness that even in the Sermon of the Mount, said is, he said is marked with what? Poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit. A poorness of spirit that realizes it can only come if God gives it. It is the righteousness in the one who demonstrates that they hunger and thirst after righteousness. That they want a righteous life. Jesus said to his disciples in this, The Son of Man, verse 2028, what is it? Did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is his very purpose for coming. The very thing he came for is to accomplish redemption for his people. Matthew started out his gospel with that in 121, for the forgiveness of their sin. In other words, the coming death and sacrifice of Christ is for His people. That is ultimately the garment that will allow them to enter into the wedding feast. Some say here that you cannot make this passage say that Jesus is including imputed righteousness, that which comes to us from God through Christ. I say that's baloney. Of course you can. Paul is not inventing the idea of imputed righteousness. He's explaining it. He's explaining what Christ did. He's explaining His ministry with greater clarity. All of Scripture, Matthew and Jesus Himself, have already made clear that nobody is in the kingdom of God who is not purchased by His blood. That is imputed righteousness. That applied to the sinner by faith is the righteousness of Christ given Unless his ransom is applied to the sinner, they are not at the feast. This is God's kingdom. It is his kingdom of grace. It is his kingdom of mercy. And it is his kingdom of his son. And those who are in his son are there. Those who are cleansed by him are there. Yes, this includes, it must include, by greater application, Christ's righteousness that is counted as our own. And this is what Isaiah, in fact, anticipated. Listen to this, Isaiah 61.10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for He has 
clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The prophet anticipated this. They knew this. The one who is in the kingdom is the one who is clothed with the righteousness of God. In fact, the righteousness of Christ. He made him who knew no sin, you can say it, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And if you have that righteousness, in the words of Paul, you bear the fruit of righteousness. In other words, it's not just simply that God counts that righteousness. If there is, it also comes with a love for Christ expressed in obedience to him. So they're both part of it. They're both part of it. And let me make a very important but often overlooked reality in connection with this. Salvation, beloved, justification by faith, counted as God's sons and daughters, declared forgiven, is not simply a legal matter. We emphasize rightly justification by faith because we are only declared right before God We only have his judgment removed because of that reality. However, if we think of salvation only in legal terms, we miss what God is saying and the glory of what it means to be in union with Christ. To say we have been covered by Christ's righteousness is not simply to say that we have been legally declared justified, though that is true. Romans 5.1 You have been justified by faith. It is a done deal. It cannot be added to for those who are in Christ. And though that is true, however, what is really behind this is to say that the believer has been made by the Spirit to share in Christ's own righteousness and Christ's own life. Do you see the difference? It's not simply this out there kind of thing that is declared, removed from our very life in Christ. Our justification is because of our union with Christ. In other words, His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His life becomes our life. We are in union with Him. That's why Paul immediately moves from Romans 5 to Romans 6. How shall we continue in sin if we have died with Him, been buried with Him, and been raised with Him, and walk in the newness of life that He, by the resurrection, has given to us through the Spirit? How shall we continue to sin? We are not slaves of unrighteousness. We are slaves of righteousness. We are compelled to obey Him who redeemed our souls. We are compelled to love Him who gave His life for us. We are compelled to honor Him whom we will stand before as our Lord and our God and our Master. So we cannot separate silly, I think it's silly to do that, This idea that it's either the works of righteousness or the righteousness of Christ, they come together. They are together. This is essentially what Jesus is saying. No one can come in to my salvation, into my kingdom, into my glory, who does not have these things. Indeed, in Revelation 17, 14, I'll turn there, he brings these things together. 
He says, these will wage war against the Lamb, speaking of the rebellious against God, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And listen, those who are with Him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. Those are together. Those are together. We could expand on that, but I will move on. So what he's saying here is, nobody is in my kingdom who is not rightly covered by my righteousness and who does not rightly demonstrate that righteousness in their life. No one, no one. As a matter of fact, Revelation 19.8 says, the fine linen that the saints are clothed with are their righteous deeds and their acts. That's what Jesus is hinting at here. However, some identify themselves with the visible assembly who do not have this life nor the fruit of it. The fact is they do not have real and saving faith. It is a grievous reality, but it is one that we bump up against routinely in the Gospels. Indeed, throughout all of Scripture, but particularly in the Gospels, the reality that not everyone who identifies themselves with God's people are, in fact, part of God's people. As a matter of fact, probably the most immediate application of this would refer to who do you think? Judas. Judas, wouldn't it? And it's rather striking, in fact, that when Judas came to Jesus at night, when he came to betray him with a kiss, when he came with the guards and the soldiers and the Jewish leaders, that they could take him by force, how did Jesus address him? Matthew 26, 50. Friend. Friend. Same term as in our parable. Friend, he says, do what you have come for. And they came and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. Judas fully participated in the outward ministry of Jesus, but he would later be shown to be an imposter, a false disciple, one who was there without the proper wedding clothes. He did not have true faith. However, the point and the principle extends far beyond Judas. Again, Jesus has repeatedly warned of the danger of externally identifying with the people of God, but never truly knowing Christ. It is a grievous reality, but it is a reality nonetheless. How familiar we are with these words. Not everyone who says to me, not everyone who thinks they possess the life of God, or at least are covered by his grace in some way, are in fact so. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, all of the things which Judas did. He did those things. But Jesus will say to them, and I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Your heart was not transformed to love me. He says it again in the tares and the wheat. No, for a while you know for a while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
He says it again with the parable of the fish. He says, as this net was filled, speaking there of all of those who were attaching themselves to the kingdom of God, they drew it up on the beach, they sat down, they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. And so it is, the warning stands. People identify with Christianity for a variety of reasons. Some may like the sense of morality that Christianity offers, the sense of purpose. Some may see that the Christian explanation of God in the world makes more sense than the other things that are out there. And they do have a basic sense that there is a God, and maybe even the God of the Bible. He is moral, and that there are consequences for sin, that generally men do need grace. Some may find comfort that being part of Christianity is good because it offers them security for the future, no fear in death. It may be that someone simply wants God's blessings. They want God's blessings on them. Or it may be that they're in the church because that's all they've ever known. They've never been outside of the church. There are those and a variety of other reasons why people attach themselves to Christianity and to the name of Christ. The problem is that though Christianity includes all of those things, blessing, purpose, grace, no fear in death, all of those things, it's possible to want those things but never truly want Christ himself and therefore to be an imposter. To never truly delight in God himself. Salvation is all about Christ and knowing him and the Father by the Spirit. Salvation is about being reconciled to God and brought into fellowship with him by the Spirit and with the Son. Salvation is about not only forgiveness of sin, but hating sin and turning from it for love of God. It is about becoming a new creature. It is about loving Christ for Christ's own sake and loving God for God's own sake. Everything else is just extra. And we may or may not experience different degrees of God's external blessing in this life. In fact, it may cost us our life. But for the believer who is truly a part of God's salvation and kingdom, that's okay. They can endure because their love is for God and their true citizenship is in the kingdom that is coming. Now the day is coming when God will expose then all who do not have this repentant faith and love for Christ. They will be forever excluded from His kingdom and cast into hell. And when the divine judgment is made, they will be made, they will be speechless. As Romans 3 says, they will be without excuse, without excuse. Let's notice then also with this, that the consequence of failing to yield to Christ is eternal punishment. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is something that Jesus has said three other times in Matthew. As a matter of fact, he says it mostly in Matthew. He says it in chapter 8, verse 12, in terms of the centurion, who will know God's kingdom blessing, and the Jews who reject, who will not, they will be in the outer darkness. He says it in chapter 13, in terms of those who will be judged and forever cast out of His presence. It is a picture of unimaginable suffering and sorrow. If you were interested, we have done in the past a sermon on hell. Weeping is the weeping of sadness and suffering. Gnashing of teeth is likely pictures the grinding of pain or possibly expressions of unrelenting anger due to their condition. At the end of the day, it is hell. And it is misery. And it is not simply the suffering of hell 
that makes hell so terrible. It is its everlasting condition. There is a complete lack of hope. And so this man is now in that condition. And those who do not rightly examine themselves will also be in that condition if they remain that way. Let's notice lastly here then, verse 14. The necessity of God's choice. The necessity of God's choice. Many are called, many are invited to the banquet of salvation and the inheritance of the kingdom in Christ. The first part of the statement, for many are called, and what we see in all of those open calls of the gospel is sometimes termed the general call. In other words, it's simply a call that goes out to all men. All are invited to partake of the blessings of God that are in Christ. None are to be excluded. Nobody is to be excluded. The good and the evil simply means that all are to have the gospel preached to them. All are to be called to repentance, to trust in Christ, and to receive the Son. Whether someone is rich, whether they are poor, whether they are educated, or whether they are uneducated, whether they are morally upright or morally debauched, all are to have the gospel preached to them. None are to be excluded. The kingdom of God only consists of redeemed who? Sinners. I came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the only option, is a redeemed sinner to be in the kingdom of God. And so many are called. Many are called. The call goes out to all. We are to preach the gospel to every creature. Let me just read this. This is exactly Paul's point. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That is our mission as a church, to preach the gospel. That is our mission as believers in Christ, to preach the gospel and refuse it and withhold it from no one. And we can freely offer the gospel of grace in all sincerity. But there is a prerequisite. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The invitation is open to all, but the only ones who hear it are the weary, the heavy laden. Those who have come to a place of realizing the impossibility of peace with God through the law, through morality, spirituality, or any other way. The invitation is open, but you must despair of self-effort and fully acknowledge your sin. So the call is general, but really it's specific, isn't it, to those who are weary and heavy laden with their sin. John 3.16 Whosoever believes... The whosoever is just that. It is an open call for all. None who believe are refused the grace of God in Christ. It is a legitimate statement. Whoever believes will receive the grace of God in Christ. Salvation is for all of the believing. All are welcome to receive Christ by faith. 
In other words, the call is open to all, but only received by those burdened, repentant, and believing. In other words, as Jesus says here, the chosen. The chosen. So now he narrows it down. Both the statement of Jesus and the parable itself then bring together two realities. The sovereignty of God and human responsibility. All are called, but not all are chosen. How then is the offer sincere, someone may say? How is the offer sincere? Let me give to you at least two points and then make a final statement. First of all, no one is judged on the basis of not being chosen. Do you understand that? No one is judged on the basis of not being chosen. Judgment is on the basis of failing to believe in Christ and living a life of unrighteousness. That is the basis of judgment. A sinner is judged because they are unwilling to part with their sin. They are unwilling to depart with a sense of security and self. They are unwilling to pay the price of following Christ on His terms. Someone is judged because they are unwilling to fully agree with God's assessment of sin and of righteousness and of salvation. No one who stands before God on the day of judgment will be able to say to God, I am here because you did not choose me. Nobody will be able to say that. But they are there because they refused to trust in Christ and come in repentant and childlike faith. You must understand that or we will misunderstand what Jesus is saying throughout Scripture on this point. Secondly, It's not as though some men are willing to turn to Christ and are willing to forsake everything to gain to Him. It's not as though some, out of all, are willing to count Him as their greatest treasure and good. It's not as though some, out of all, on their own, want God's acceptance and want God's total forgiveness and want to commit themselves in total obedience and love to Him. That is not the description of man. The description of man is dead in trespasses and sin. The description of man is held captive to do his will. The description of man is that nobody seeks for God. That is either true or it is untrue. So the fact is that here, those who do experience the desire for receiving God's grace, those who do experience the desire and the fruit of having received that grace are identified as the chosen. It is a work of God's grace to the Spirit. You were born not of the will of man nor of flesh, but of God. Born by the Spirit of God to enter into His kingdom. And then by that virtue of that birth to receive Christ, to see our sin and be broken by it and want His grace. So no one can say then that I'm not there because I'm not chosen but because I did not choose God. But if you know the stirrings of grace in your heart, you are to turn to Him and receive Him. All are invited and all are to seek His grace and receive it. All who desire to come to Christ, no matter the cost, are received into His everlasting arms of mercy and grace. If you desire Christ, then come to Him and drink freely from the river of life without cost. You make this final note. Those who have, and this is the Lord's point, will demonstrate it in newness of life. It's not a perfect life, but it's a life that clearly rests in Christ alone, delights in Him, longs to be with Him and the Father and at the great wedding feast of the Son. 
I trust then that you will, and you are those who delight in Christ and long to be with him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you for giving us your son. How dear and precious he is, and how dear and precious is the grace that you have given us in him. May we who know him learn to delight in him more and more as the day goes by. May we learn to trust you with all of our hearts. May we learn to increase in our obedience that we might know the blessedness of walking faithfully with you. Help us to do these things. And for those here who do not know you, who may be a part of the visible assembly of God's people but do not have wedding clothes, they do not have yet your righteousness and they do not yet have that hunger and thirst for righteousness that is the fruit of it, then will you convict them this day and cause them to turn to Christ and drink gloriously from the river of life that is extended to them in your Son. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.